0: Hi, and welcome to Jesus Over Everything, a short, practical podcast that mixes encouragement, the Bible, how-tos, and fantastic interviews for the listener on the go. I'm Lisa Whittle, and I welcome you to the Joe Interview Show with me, which I trust and pray will be time well spent. What a joy to welcome founder and president of Phil Waldrop Ministries, originator of Christian conferences like the popular Women of Joy, Phil Waldrop to Joe. He's also a preacher, evangelist, and an author, and he's here today to talk about something that affects a lot of us, I think, betrayal, and more importantly, how to come back from it, especially when it's by someone you love and trust, and maybe even as was in Phil's case, someone who shared your faith. Phil's new book, Beyond Betrayal, is a really helpful and informative read, and we talk all things hard feelings, self-protection, and the balance between open-ended trust and trust with boundaries, and Phil shares what's on the other side of a betrayal. Such goodness, such depth. Listen now to my conversation with my new friend, Phil Waldrop. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show today, Phil, and for several reasons. One, it is an occasion to get to know a new brother, a strong leader, and you know many of my friends as well, Allie Worthington, Annie Downs, many others, but you and I have thus far never met. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: We so got to change fun. that. We, we got to meet. Meet. do it. Yeah. If you're, want... fr- if you're friends with Annie and Allie, I got to tell you, <laughs> we have to be friends.
0: <laughs> good company, right? Yeah. Oh, it's, absolutely. It's, it's good stuff. Well, you run the Women of Joy conferences that I'm sure some of my listeners have been to through the years. What do you find special about corporate gatherings like that?
1: Well, I think it's really amazing to watch when people get to come together from various backgrounds, from various parts of the country and really from different churches and everybody contributes something by their presence and the worship and just sitting and hearing the word of God taught and hearing testimonies. There's something about the synergy of that, that people are coming together and it helps us get a glimpse, I think, of what the body of Christ is going to be. And in a day when there is so much Uh, that can distract us. You know, we're addicted to our cell phones and we're addicted to computers. And Mm. it's like we can't go a minute without this information overload. One of the things I've learned about corporate gatherings is it gives us a time to shut all of that off, shut all of it out and give our undivided attention to what God is trying to say to us. And I think that is healthy.
0: Mm. I agree with you. I think it is a beautiful a uh, picture of what Jesus intended, right? For Mm -hmm. us to gather together, for us to worship, for us to be of one heart and one spirit. And it's special, man. I don't think we should take it for granted to be able to do that because in some parts of the world they can't gather. They can't do that. They can't worship openly like that. So um, I love what you're doing there and so support that work. You said that you knew as a teenager you were going to run a Christian organization. Mm -hmm. How in the world did you have that sense so early, do you think?
1: Well, there's a little bit. I I worked in radio when I was 12 years of age. And so I I discovered the power of the spoken word Mm. and the power of communicating without people being able to see you that I learned from those days. But I also was searching, Lord, how do you want to use me? What do you want me to do? And so when I was a teenager, I really had dreams of maybe going to Auburn University and becoming a veterinarian. That was really what I wanted to do. I wanted Hmm. to be a large animal uh, veterinarian. But God began to just put in my heart that I was to be in ministry, that I was going to be speaking. And I really sense, Lord, you know, give me the skills and the abilities to put events together, to write, to do those things. And that was the dream the Lord put in my heart. And I followed it now all of these years, for uh, 45 years, as a matter of fact, this year. that I've been following that and God has honored it. He sure
0: has, and (laughs) listen, I know a little bit about the other side of things and of course, you know, I, I go and speak at things, but I also know about the other side of like the organizational side and that is no small thing to put those things together, to have them running smoothly. Uh, there's quite a vision there and the execution is difficult. And so uh, he certainly did put that vision in your heart and then just to be able to have that longevity for so long, wow, I respect that so much. Mm-hmm. What would you say to a young person, maybe? Listening that has a big vision even at a younger age
1: what would you say to them I would say take advantage of the opportunities that you have Uh, people often come and sit in my office and they share with me this huge vision how they want to touch the world but if you're not touching people around you where you are you're not going to be able to touch the world Hmm. many times people want to speak in front of a large crowd and I've said to many speakers Uh, you're not ready for that. And they Mm. look at me kind of stunned. And I said, because if you can't speak to a group of 50 people or 100 people or 25 people and communicate effectively, when you get on a large stage in front of several thousand people, a couple of things are going to happen. Your flaws and your weaknesses are going to be magnified Hmm. and you're not going to come across as strong and the dynamics are going to change. Because, you know, when you're in a large arena with several thousand people, people are going to be up walking around. They're going to distract you. There might be lights on stage that are virtually blinding you. Hmm. And the only way you can get there is through experience. So I tell them, don't, you know, don't forget the small things. I, people forget that for the first five, six, seven years of my ministry, half of my speaking was to nursing homes. Yeah, And just going and and if you can talk to the nursing home and they understand it and they get it, you're starting to learn how to communicate. And I just took advantage of every small opportunity. And sometimes people want to jump to the top. I use the analogy of baseball. You may be a good baseball player, but going from the minor league, and I mean like playing when you're 10, 11, 12 years of age, to the New York Yankees, you're not ready for that. You may get there quicker than some, but you need the experience. So take advantage of the opportunities you have. And if you're faithful in the small things, God will enable you to do things in a bigger way.
0: That is such a good word. I hope that anyone from my called creatives community is listening because that's something that Allie and I talk about all the time is really get your reps in and really just get that experience because Mm -hmm. it is so important. And in this today's culture, it's always about, hey, let's do something powerful quickly. And the reality Mm -hmm. is all of these experiences along the way build to something else and um, they change who you are as a human. They make you into a different person. And, you know, I've I've, I've shared this before, I think on the podcast, one of my first speaking gigs was for a group of 2000 people. Mm. And Phil, I was awful. I was just awful because I wasn't ready for it, you right. know. And I then I realized the the power of of getting the kinks out and learning in a very in a smaller setting and mm-hmm. what a gift to get to do that. So anytime someone comes to me and they say I'm just starting out speaking, I say, "Look at that as a blessing because you can mess up in front of 20 people versus 2000, you know?" So I love that's that true. I love that word and I think that's so important. A big vision is great and hold on to it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I do believe God places those in our hearts, but I think there's something to be said about um, just the power and the experience of of starting out small and. Mm-hmm. You're right. It, it, the heart behind what you do, even, you know, behind closed doors and meeting with, you know, handfuls of people, that heart will carry you far and on to other things. So super important. there. Thank you for that. Well, another reason I want you to come on the show is because of your experience. That was a catalyst for you writing your new book beyond betrayal. Mm-hmm. This is a vital message because probably all of us at some point have been betrayed in some way. Mm-hmm. And I think have spent probably a significant time, then sorting through it. How much of a role do you think does bitterness and resentment after a betrayal play into a lot of us being stuck in our lives?
1: Well, I am finding as I travel and I talk to people that people who did not process a betrayal in a healthy way and in a biblical way, often. Uh, you know, we go through those stages of denial and anger, but we get a root of bitterness in our life. And Hmm. bitterness, as I have often said to people, a person who has bitterness in their life is like a person with bad breath. Everybody around them knows it, except the person who has it. And we think Hmm. we're okay when we're really very bitter inside. And when the person touches the wound, or they touch or speak of the person who betrayed us. All of the venom from that bitterness comes out and we may not realize it at first. So that's why we have to have people in our life who can speak to our life because it affects every relationship you have. If you do not process a betrayal in a biblical healthy way, it will affect every relationship you have for the rest of your life.
0: Boy, is that true. And there are people listening that are nodding their heads, there are people that it's resonating deep within their soul because bitterness is one of those things that a lot of us can certainly feel and sense, and then we know people mm-hmm. who we we can sense their bitterness. You were betrayed by someone who worked for you in the ministry. People can read about more about that story and details in the book. Uh, But why do betrayals hurt so much more, do you think, when they're someone close to you, maybe someone you've really trusted? And also, I think something tied to the Lord. When we're doing some kind of work and it's tied to the Lord and there's a betrayal there, why does that hurt so much?
1: Well, betrayals by their very nature come from people that we have invested a lot in. Hmm. You know, the more we have invested in the relationship, the more the betrayal hurts. And betrayal occurs usually from someone that we did not think was capable of betraying us, whether it is our spouse, whether it is a co-worker, uh, an employee, a best friend. The fact that we allowed them into the innermost chambers of our life meant that we totally trusted them and we really didn't see them as betraying us. So when they do, It hurts because all of the investment we have made in that relationship is suddenly lost. And often we're left with the pieces to pick up. And we think when we pick those pieces up that, well, our life is over, our life is shattered and forever we'll have to just live with this. And the truth is, it may be a scar. You know, I tell people there's a difference between a wound and a scar. A wound, you touch it, and it hurts because it's still the healing process. But when it becomes a scar, you can touch it, and it doesn't hurt because healing is complete. And the goal you want to have is to not rush the healing process, but get through the healing process so that you have a scar. Yes, it's there, but it doesn't hurt anymore. And you can use your scars as a testimony and say, yes, I was betrayed. But let me tell you how I found life to be better after the betrayal, how God, what what the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. So that's my message when I talk to people about betrayal.
0: And I think that's important because a lot of people, you know, feel like that 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 just residual pain will last forever, you know, and that Mm -hmm. there they can't ever get past that. Or you know, it's something like you say in the book that that first nail in the coffin you had to fight for years was sort of your heart behind this statement. I'm never going to be tricked like that again. So it's those walls that go up. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so hard not to self protect when you've been hurt. It's sort of like an instinct. And we self-protect because we're convinced that in some way that works better for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it, right? Because we all have behaviors that we do because we think, well, that's what we need to do right now. That's what I have to do Mm -hmm. to survive. Why isn't it better for us to self-protect after we've been betrayed and we don't want to be tricked again?
1: Well, when we're betrayed, initially, our emotions are very raw, especially if it's a very close betrayal to us. And because our emotions are raw, we go from maybe outbursts of anger to crying and feeling almost depressed. And so we feel this need to protect our emotions and to protect ourselves. And in addition, we find ourselves thinking, well, if I did not see this coming in this person, Now there's a question mark over everybody around us. Right. Maybe I feel so stupid for what I did. And I always tell people, when you go through a betrayal, I call them the friends of Job show up and start telling you things like, well, I could have told you this was going to happen or, (laughs) you know, I saw this and I just didn't want to tell you. And then you get angry at your friends because they're kind of implying to you, you know, you're dumber than you think you are. And you're really not dumb. They're trying to help you by validating that they saw a flaw in your betrayer. But in reality, what we have to do is it's okay for a time to self-protect. But if you build a wall high enough to keep pain out, you build a wall high enough to keep love out. And we were made for relationships. As I tell people, if the Lord did not want us to have relationships, he would have created millions of little islands in the ocean and put every one of us on one of them. He made us to have relationships. And if we build that wall, then we're going to feel lonely and we're going to be isolated if we don't allow people in. And I tell people, you may be betrayed again, but there's a little exercise when I wrote Beyond Betrayal that I put in the book because I think it's a something that's very helpful to do. Take a piece of paper And on the left side of the paper, list the person or persons in your life who have betrayed you. And on the right side of the piece of paper, list everybody who has not betrayed you. And if you go through and you do that, you'll see that the list on the right is far longer than the list on the left. But don't allow the people on the left side who betrayed you to keep the people on the right side who did not betray you Uh, from being in your life and loving you. That's one of
0: the things that I really appreciate about the book. That amongst other things are are really helpful. They're practical. It's not just saying, "Hey, you know, you can get past this or this is my story." You really dig in there and say, "Here are some helpful things to do to get past it." I appreciate that kind of a book because sometimes people want to, they just don't know how to. There's a section in the book called When Betrayers Seem to Win, and I think that is really important because Isn't one of the hardest things feeling like we want our betrayer to suffer? You know, I mean, that is a natural sort of flesh instinct, at least kind of the first reaction. Mm -hmm. What do you think is behind that? And how do we let go of that in particular, us wanting to see them suffer or wanting to see them not win at the very least?
1: Well, first of all, we want to be vindicated. We want people to know the truth about the betrayer and about us. And often we have mutual friends, uh, their family members, they may take the side of the betrayer. And when they take the side of the betrayer, we feel this obligation to expose the truth. And sometimes when they hear the truth, they don't want to hear it because of their attachment to the person who betrayed us. And I have found that many times when people go through a betrayal and the betrayer gets rewarded for the betrayal, It's especially hard. You know, you have a co worker and you have become very good friends and you have shared some very deep, personal, confidential uh, things about your life. And then when a job opening comes, your friend shares those things that keeps you from getting the promotion, but they get the promotion. They not only betrayed you, but they got rewarded for betraying you. And in Beyond Betrayal, I tell the story of a worship leader at a church who had an affair with uh, one of the secretaries at the church. And of course, his wife realizing that he wanted to end their marriage, uh, they divorced. She returned home to her parents with two small children. She did not have a job. Financially, it was a struggle because her parents did not have a lot of extra money to help. Yet her former husband, in a matter of weeks after the divorce is finalized he marries the woman with whom he had the affair and then he is becomes the Minister of Worship at a extremely large mega church. and he's making three times the money he was making if not four times yeah and she's like wait a minute why am I the one who's suffering and he seemingly is getting rewarded and that's hard And you'll build that wall, and you really become bitter towards some of those people who you see as rewarding them.
0: Mm. Okay, so then what do we do about it? When we get in that situation, Mm -hmm. we're the one that watches someone else thrive, or at least what it looks like they're thriving. What do we do?
1: Well, it comes back to something that I discovered, and that is, what is forgiveness? And forgiveness in the New Testament is... It's when I give up my rights to revenge. It's when I say I am not going to try to get even. And if I spend my life trying to get even or trying to make the betrayer feel um, or to feel the pain that I'm feeling, I'm never going to win because every time they get rewarded, I feel this obligation to keep trying to make them hurt and to feel the pain. And so I tell people, I don't say this very flippantly, because there's a whole lot more to it than just this, but forgiving a person means I don't seek revenge. And if they are seemingly rewarded, then I have to leave that to God. That's God's business, and it's not my desire to get even. And I have always found with time, someone who's betrayed you, it will ultimately be exposed And God will settle the scores. And so I think it's hard. It was hard for me. It took me years to get to that place. In fact, I found forgiveness was a daily decision, not a one-time decision. Hmm. But it was a daily decision that I had to say every day, I choose to forgive my betrayer. Today, I will not seek revenge. I didn't worry about tomorrow or the next day. I just want to get through today. And if you can, because there's a little slogan that I like to use that says, forgiving the person who hurts you frees you from the person who hurt you. And Mm -hmm. as long as you're trying to get even, it's like a chain is wrapped around you. And they are controlling your emotions. They're controlling what you say, what you do, and where you go. But when you forgive them, the chain falls off, and you are free from that moment on.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm <laughs> I think that's such a good word that just daily, a daily choice to forgive Mm -hmm. because we try to swallow the whole thing. You know, we try to make it, you know, uh, we look down the road. We can't, we can't project. We can't, we're we're, we're like, I I can't do this whole big thing, but we can do one day at a time. And I think that's a really powerful way Mm -hmm. to frame it and uh, will help a lot of people. Lots of people listening are on the other side of the betrayal like you. What is something particularly helpful you've learned on the other side of a betrayal to keep your heart soft, but also stay wise so you don't fall into maybe being duped?
1: Well, there was something that I don't know if anyone ever taught me this, but I assumed uh, all in my early years as a young child and as a Christian, I associated forgiveness and trust as being one in the same. Hmm. Which meant that if I said, I forgive my betrayer, I thought that meant I had to restore the relationship to the same level as before and unconditionally trust them again. Yes. But in the New Testament, we are told to love people, we are told to forgive people, and we're told to trust God. But nowhere in the Bible are we told to trust people. Hmm. We're We're never told to trust a person. Yeah. Trust has to be earned. Yeah. It's not something I freely am, uh, give to a person. You don't walk out on the street and say to someone on the street that you don't know, here, would you hold my purse? Would you hold my wallet for me? <laughs> yeah. You don't do that. Why? Right. Because you they have not earned your trust to hold your wallet or to hold your purse. Hmm. And the same is true in a betrayal. You don't have to fully trust that person, even if they're repentant. They need to understand for the relationship to be restored and it can be restored with time. They have to be accountable and open so that you can ask questions and speak into their life and not be offended by that because the betrayer has to be willing to say, I'm an open book, ask anything you want. And in doing so, they build trust. So for me, I had to discover forgiving and trusting are two different things. That's a
0: great distinction, and I think that is really important to make that distinction because I think we do get that Mm -hmm. mixed up. And I think we do often think, oh, well, I've got to, you know, either all or nothing. I've either got to go all the way with it or I'm not being spiritual or I'm not being godly or we, you know, we stay stuck in this other place. And so uh, that's that's a really good distinction there. Mm -hmm. You have a powerful word picture in your book. Can you tell me about that a little bit?
1: Oh, I can. And I think everyone who has been through a betrayal that's listened to us, I want to tell you about the day that I really realized what it would be like to be beyond the betrayal. I had done everything I needed to do. I I was processing the pain in a healthy way. And I'm very specific and beyond betrayal on how you do that. I had come to the place where I really believed in my heart. I had forgiven my betrayer. But I wonder what was life going to be like. And I walked in one day and I saw a piece of pottery. And um, and I I like to go to antique stores and wander around. and, And pottery, especially pottery, you know, that's over 100 years old, is often very expensive, based on who made it and where. But if a piece of pottery has any kind of flaw, its value diminishes greatly. So I walked into the store. And there was a piece of pottery that obviously was broken and had been repaired. And my first reaction was, wow, that's not worth anything. I don't even know why they have that out. And then I saw the price and I thought the price is just, I mean, that's ridiculous what they're asking until the person told me what it was. You know, in every culture, when a piece of pottery was broken, they picked up the pieces and they threw them out they were of no value anymore. Everyone did that except the Japanese. In Japanese culture when a piece of pottery was broken, they picked up the pieces and they made a proxy and they put it back together. But in the early days for the proxy to work they had to mix in it gold. And today a piece of pottery uh, that's over a hundred years old A piece of Japanese pottery that has been broken and it has been repaired with gold is worth more than the piece from that same era that was never broken. Hmm. So if you've been betrayed and your life is in shatters, you may think, I just need to pick up the pieces of my life and throw my life away. I don't have any value anymore. Well, I want you to know that's not true. That when you allow God's word and the gold touches of his love, and the goldness of forgiveness, to put the pieces back together, you will, yes, have cracks and repairs and scars, but you will be more valuable to the work of God, and and not that you're more valuable to God, but you will sense a greater value after you've been through a betrayal than before, because you let God put the pieces back together. And when I saw that, I was free. Mm. I was free because I saw the value was in allowing God to repair the brokenness of my life and to pick up the pieces and let him put it back together.
0: Mm. That's beautiful. I hope that sinks really deep into your heart and your soul today as you listen to that story. Thank you so much for for telling us that. Mm-hmm. This show is called Jesus Over Everything. I wonder, what does that mean when I say that? What does that personally mean to you, Jesus, over everything?
1: Well, it means a reflection of priorities, that you, you do what Jesus called us to do, that you put first in your life the kingdom of God in your relationship with Jesus. And it means that I have totally surrendered to his best for my life. And even when I look at something like the betrayal in my life, I had to see Jesus over the betrayal. Hmm. Think of it this way. When Jesus was betrayed by Judas, I don't think Jesus trusted Judas. I mean, from the beginning, John said that he knew Judas was going to betray him. Mm -hmm. So why did Jesus allow the betrayal to occur? Because Jesus had his eye on the plan of God. And in the plan of God, even if you're a Joseph in the Old Testament who sold into slavery and a falsely accused, and uh, and then you help somebody, and they promise they'll help you later, and they don't do it. All of those things Joseph in the Old Testament went to. Joseph never fell into sin. He kept his eyes on the plan of God. And when we say Jesus over everything, it means I keep my eyes on Jesus. And no matter what happens in my life, God is going to take the brokenness and the betrayals, and he is going to do something great. When I keep my eyes and keep Jesus over everything, it means that no matter what happens in my life, I know it's gonna work out for God's glory and my good.
0: So good. Yep, that's the message of Jesus over everything Mm -hmm. and the priority order. So thank you so much for speaking into that. All right, my friend, here is the last question. I ask it of every single guest. What is the last thing you would say about Jesus if you could only say one last thing?
1: The last thing I would say about Jesus if I could only say one last thing He loves you unconditionally. And because of that love, he will always act in your best interest. And because he always acts in your best interest, if you will follow him, his will and his plan, you will never regret one day that you followed him.
0: Thank you for that, Phil Waldrop. Thank you for being on the show. It has been a great joy to have you on the Jesus Over Everything show today.
1: Well, thank you, Lisa. It's been my honor.
0: This has been Jesus Over Everything with Lisa Whittle. Hey, I'd love to come and speak for your church event or gathering. If you're interested in how to make that happen, head over to my website at lisawittle.com and my speaking page and put in a quick inquiry there. I would love to come and bring God's Word to your city.